Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the second part of our Diffusion Nucleus special. Prepare for full body radiation with weird and wonderful science. My name's Lachlan Watmore and in this edition we're going to be talking with Drs Sue Wareham and Tillman Ruff on the prevention of the proliferation of nuclear weapons and other important items which seem to have received much less than appropriate attention in the nuclear debate. We're also going to take away the heavy part for a bit towards the end and Jackie Peffer is going to look at robot-human relationships. First up though, as usual, we have the news with Patrick Ruby and Ian Wolfe. <laughs> The $7.5 million Institute of Nuclear Science promised to Sydney University may be in doubt. Picked by the federal government to expand Australia's expertise in applied nuclear science, the Institute was supposed to use the new Opal reactor at Lucas Heights. Unfortunately, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation were forced to close down early in 2007 for safety reasons. It's unknown when the research facility will be open again. The organisation has stopped making nuclear medicines during the closure. Sydney University signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation in August 2007 and was surprised by a storm of protest against the move. The University Senate are considering postponing the opening of the Institute until after the federal election to stop the protesters. The University of New South Wales School of Nuclear Engineering was closed in 1986 when the Australian public decided against nuclear power. Sydney University were involved in the federal government signing US President George W. Bush's Global Nuclear Energy Partnership, or GNEP, at the APEC meeting in September. President Bush warned that the technology for processing of nuclear waste is directly tied to the production of nuclear weapons. GNAP is his plan to allow the countries that have forbidden nuclear weapons to still buy uranium and nuclear power plants without also gaining nuclear weapons technology. To prevent untrustworthy nations from using nuclear waste processing technology to make nuclear weapons, President Bush wants the Global Nuclear Energy Partnership members to take their radioactive waste and use the technology to process the waste into plutonium. Prime Minister John Howard declined to sign Australia up to this section of the partnership that would have required all countries trading in uranium to become waste dumps for the countries that are trusted with nuclear power plants, but not nuclear waste that can become nuclear weapons. More news on GNEP. Scientists oppose nuclear waste reprocessing. The National Academy of Sciences has recommended that the Global Nuclear Energy Partnership, or GNEP, is scrapped. A panel consisting of 17 members produced a report on the program, which claims that if GNET plans go ahead, they will cause significant technical and financial risks. GNET was set up by the Bush administration in 2006 as a way to deal with the growing amount of radioactive waste and allow the expansion of commercial nuclear power. Within the partnership, countries like Russia and the US would supply others with reactor fuel and reprocess used fuel. The panel claims that this is taking money away from other nuclear research programs. 
has not been adequately peer-reviewed and depends on technology that hasn't been proven and isn't expected to be ready in the time the Bush administration envisions. One of the technical problems identified by the panel is a new method in reprocessing fuel called the UREX process. The GNET program has been criticised by nuclear non-proliferation activists and politicians. The US Congress provided only $167 million out of the $395 million requested in funding this year. It is expected to cost billions of dollars over several decades to construct reprocessing plants and new generation reactors. However, the Energy Department claims that GNEP will reduce the cost of commercial reactor waste disposal and the number of underground waste sites needed to be built. The Energy Secretary, Samuel Bodman, says GNEP will allow for a greater global reliance on civilian nuclear power to produce electricity needed and safeguard against nuclear proliferation. And now nuclear tourism. 15,000 Swedish tourists visit each of Sweden's three nuclear plants every year. Almost one-third of Sweden's 9 million strong population have been to a nuclear power plant in the last 35 years, according to Torsten Boll, the communications director at state firm Vattenfall, Forsmark's majority owner. The Forsmark reactor tour allows tourists to look down on the reactor from 54 metres above ground level as it lies silent in a pool of cooling water. After this they go down to the extremely noisy turbine where steam from the reactor directly powers the turbine. This type of reactor produces radiation in the air of the turbine room and can only be used in remote places. Each tourist wears protective clothing and carries dosimeters which monitor radiation exposure. If all goes well on the tour, the equipment shows exposure to only fractional radiation, lower than naturally present in the environment. In July 2006, a short circuit forced an emergency shutdown, known as a scram in the industry at Forsmark. But no radiation leaked out and no one was hurt. Inspectors will visit the plant next February to check on improvements in the process of emergency shutdown. In 1980, Sweden voted in a referendum to phase out nuclear power, but recent opinion polls have shown 80% of the population are still comfortable with its use. That was Patrick Ruby with the news. And Pat, we hope you're feeling better soon, mate. Pat tells me that that particular reactor in Fosmark, when it had its power outage, it was only two hours away from a Chernobyl-like meltdown due to the lack of coolant being provided to the core. So if you're a tourist standing only 54 metres away from the core itself at that particular time, that's what I'd call extreme tourism. And now here's Charles Willock with the second part of our nuclear special. Many people think that the Lucas Heights HIFAR reactor was Australia's first. That ignores Moetta, the small reactor on the same site which used uranium concentrated to the 80% level. Similarly, most people don't realise that a nuclear power reactor was nearly built on the Jarvis Bay Capital Territory site by the Federal Liberal Government Coalition around about 1969. Due to the risk of proliferation, this week's interviewees might be characterised as having considerable reservations about the nuclear power industry. But first, some terrorist events that didn't happen. In July 2006, in full daylight and unchallenged, reporter Tom Parry and a photographer from the UK Daily Mirror demonstrated it was possible to plant a fake bomb on a nuclear waste transport train. They recorded their actions for their readers. That followed another example of security vulnerability where, 
based on bogus references, journalist Ryan Parry, also with the Daily Mirror, took a job as a footman at Buckingham Palace. Parry had direct access to the Queen and remained undetected for two months. More recently, the ABC Chaser team in Australia infiltrated security to within a few tens of metres of George W. Bush at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, APEC, meeting, the tightest security that Australia has seen. There seems to be a belief amongst Gen Y that nuclear weapons are just somewhat bigger and somewhat better than the blockbuster bombs used in the Second World War and in Vietnam. That significantly underestimates the situation. In April 1995, a truck loaded with explosives detonated outside a US government office complex in central Oklahoma City. The Oklahoma City bombing, heard 55 kilometres away, killed 168 people and was equivalent to about two tonnes of high explosive. Now consider a nuclear warhead. Imagine bombs the size of the Oklahoma truck bomb placed at one metre intervals for every metre between Sydney and Melbourne. For United States listeners, think New York City to Detroit. For Europe, two tonnes of high explosive for every metre between London and Munich. And that's for one single warhead. The largest nuclear bomb tested in air is 25 times that size. Missiles carrying multiple warheads are common. Targeting accuracy is measured in metres. Dr Sue Wareham, President of the Medical Association for Prevention of War, was awarded a Medal of the Order of Australia in 2006 for services to the community and to the peace movement. We talked about her recent briefing paper titled The Nuclear Industry, A History of Misleading Claims in www.energyscience.org.au. We started by talking about hormesis, the claim by the nuclear industry that a little bit of radiation is good for you. Well, yes, it's quite extraordinary and I think actually rather irresponsible that the nuclear industry is still putting forward the view that a small amount of radiation can be good for you. Uh, this really goes against um, overwhelmingly strong opinion of, of most scientists in the field and, and of authoritative statements that have come out that in fact there is no level of radiation which we can regard as safe. So even a very low level of radiation carries some risk with it although the lower the level, uh, the lower the risk, but there is no lower limit below which we can say radiation is safe. Um, probably the most authoritative statement in this respect was the most recent one from the uh, Committee on the Biological Effects of Ionising Radiation, which is part of the US National Academy of Sciences, in 2005 stated that there is no lower level of radiation which we can regard as safe. So the notion of hormesis, which the nuclear industry, including in Australia, continues to promote, uh, really is not backed up by science. The nuclear weapons in India were developed under the Atoms for Peace program. Is there a likelihood or is, this, is there, there an issue of connection between uh, nuclear power generation and weapons development, for example, in Australia? Well, this is a very important issue and it's one that's been overlooked largely in the debate, well, to the extent there's been a debate about whether Australia should develop nuclear power. There are very strong links between nuclear power and nuclear weapons and what we see in practically all the nuclear weapon states, uh, the countries that have nuclear weapons, is that there are, there are very strong links between the civilian and the military programs in practically all the nuclear weapon states and, and as you indicated, India was one example, but uh, we look at the other nuclear weapon states and we see 
uh, similar links either in origin or in or in, or in ongoing um, ways way the industries are conducted. This is certainly an issue for Australia in a number of ways. Uh, for example, uh, probably the main one is that Australia is uh, an exporter of uranium, of course, and we export to a number of nuclear weapon states. And we're about to start exporting to China, um, another nuclear weapon state, and the government would like to see, current government would like to see our uranium going to India. Now, there are major concerns with this because the government talks to us about safeguards and we're told that our uranium that we export to other countries can't end up in weapons, but safeguards cannot guarantee that our uranium will not end up in weapons. And in fact, there are very good reasons that can make us reasonably certain that some of our uranium will end up in weapons if we take, for example, the instance of China. Now, when Australia sends uranium to China, we know that the first port of call of that uranium when it reaches China will be a conversion facility, which is not safeguarded. The uh, uranium uh, will then be enriched at an enrichment facility, which is unlikely to be safeguarded. And a couple of further steps along the way, for example, in fuel fabrication, this will be at Chinese facilities, which are not safeguarded. They don't have any IAEA safeguards in place. And in fact, the Chinese National Nuclear Corporation, uh, which will handle Australian and other uranium, controls all aspects of nuclear operations in in China, both civilian and military. So it would be really, really naive to believe that um, under that sort of setup, our uranium won't end up in Chinese nuclear weapons. No one likes us, I don't know why. We may not be perfect. Heaven knows we try But all around Even our old friends put us down Let's drop the big one And see what happens We give them money But are they grateful? No, they're spiteful And they're hateful They don't respect us So let's surprise them We'll drop the big one I'm talking with Dr. Sue Wareham, President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Further on, on the issue of Australia and nuclear weapons, it's not only the issue of where our uranium ends up, but also if Australia were to develop nuclear power, this could be of some concern to our neighbours because in any country that has a nuclear power or nuclear capacity, there's the capacity there to develop weapons if the political climate changes, if a decision were made that Australia might benefit from having nuclear weapons, then uh, even the, the possibility of that decision being made would be, of course, of major concern to our neighbours. Yucca Mountain in the US has effectively been ruled out. It's an earthquake zone, has significant issues with soil porosity, and most recently, in fact, the Department of Energy has been discussing fabrication of data. How do you feel about the likelihood of Australia now becoming encouraged to be a spent fuel repository to the US? Well, I think this is a major concern, um, and you're certainly right, Charles, that there are big, big problems associated with Yucca Mountain, and it, it looks increasingly unlikely that Yucca Mountain will go ahead as a permanent um, waste repository. And the US has an enormous amount of high-level waste, about 70,000 tonnes of it from both civilian and military uses around the country. 
So the US government um, has got to come up with something to do with this waste. It's becoming a major problem for them. So I think it's likely that there will be pressure put on Australia to to regard it as our duty to take waste from other countries. And we should remember some years back there was a proposal from the company Pangea for Australia to become a high-level waste dump. It does seem rather ironic that Pangea folded in Australia and yet nuclear waste companies are talking about safeguarding the nuclear waste for a quarter of a million years. If they can't operate a business for more than 10, that does seem to be problematic. People talk about Australia being not only geologically stable but politically stable, but, uh, I mean, that notion is absolutely meaningless when we're talking about timeframes of thousands of years. That was Charles Willock talking with Sue Wareham of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Randy Newman with Political Science. Thanks, Charles. You're listening to Diffusion, the international science show broadcast on 2SER in Sydney and iPodded around the world. This is Diffusion Science Radio. Charles Willock is talking with Tillman Ruff. Associate Professor Tillman Ruff is Vice President of the MAPW and the Australian Chair of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, run by the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, the IPPNW. The IPPNW received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985. As his day job, Professor Ruff works at the Nossel Institute for Global Health, Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne. He is an infectious diseases and public health physician with particular interest in vaccines and immunisation. I started by asking about ICANN. ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, is a, is a new campaign that's been established by international physicians for prevention of nuclear war out of frustration that nuclear dangers around the world are growing, and both on proliferation and on disarmament, we're really going backwards. And yet we're not making any significant progress towards getting to the root of the problem and getting rid of nuclear weapons, as we've done for chemical and biological weapons and landmines, uh, and other weapons that are that are inhumane and indiscriminate, and and we think it's way overdue to to do the same for for nuclear weapons. We then spoke about a hypothetical nuclear attack. The radio's going nuts. Your phones, emails, and SMS are absolutely going berserk. You've never seen anything like this before. What happens next? It's going to be bedlam. The possibilities range everywhere from somebody getting a radioactive source, most likely something that's been used for industry or for radiotherapy for cancer patients that hasn't been adequately safeguarded and then has been been stolen, dispersed via some kind of conventional explosive in a populated area, the so-called dirty bomb. And that certainly has the potential to spread radioactivity over a significant part of a city centre, but is likely to immediately affect sort of hundreds to thousands of people but really to cause major mayhem and disruption and of course a lot of fear and concern from people potentially exposed and huge issues of, of economic and social dislocation and cleanup with potentially persistent contamination of large areas of an urban centre potentially having to be off limits for decades if not centuries and, and having to undergo major cleanup operations. At the other end of the scale would be a terrorist group actually being able to buy, uh, steal a nuclear weapon or to access the fissile material, either the highly enriched uranium or the plutonium required to make a nuclear explosive, a bomb, and detonate that. And 
particularly with highly enriched uranium, the technical capacity to do that is, is very simple. I mean, it's something that any university physics or engineering student over a couple of weeks accessing information available freely on the internet ought to be able to do. I think the one that's, I think, of considerable concern and really doesn't get the kind of discussion that I think it warrants is attacks on nuclear facilities. You wouldn't need a nuclear weapon to create a major radioactive contamination event not unlike what would happen if a nuclear bomb went off by targeting either a reactor or the spent fuel storage facilities that are located next to, to most reactors that in the case of reactors used to generate uh, electricity contain generally a very large amount of long-lived radioactivity and generally considerably more radioactivity in the spent fuel than in the reactor itself. And these spent fuel storage facilities generally don't have the kind of containment layers and structures that, that the reactor vessel itself does and are quite vulnerable to even relatively simple attack from you know, a truck full of explosives, from a shoulder-held rocket or grenade launcher, from disruption of the power or water supply to the cooling systems. The question I really wanted to ask you is, what keeps you awake at nights? Well, I guess I, I, I do really have concerns about the risks of, of nuclear weapons being used Deliberately, I think we still have, you know, even 15 years after the Cold War ended, we still have about 4,000 of the 27,000-odd nuclear weapons in the world on, on high, high alert status, so-called hair-trigger alert, launch-on warning, so they're programmed to launch within minutes. It leaves very little time for decision-making, for checking, for verification. I also worry very much about what seems to be the lowering threshold, so that now we have all of the nuclear weapon states not just not disarming but actually developing new nuclear weapons and designing new missions for them, lowering the threshold for their use. And, you know, we have talk even now of, of a preemptive attack on, on Iran, possibly using nuclear weapons. I mean, this is... The hypocrisy of this is extraordinary to contemplate the use of nuclear weapons to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons. That was special guest Tillman Ruff talking with Charles Willock about nuclear proliferation. Uh, you're listening to Diffusion, the international science show, broadcast from 2SCR here in Sydney and podcast right around the world. Have you ever thought of marrying a robot? Previously on Diffusion, Jackie Peffer was looking at programming robots and whether or not they could become lifelike enough one day that we could possibly marry them and maybe even have sex with them. This is the second part of that story. Jackie talks with psychologist Jaron Descartes about the psychological issues of robot relations. Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband until you both shall live or malfunction? I do. If man did marry a robot, who would be the best man and would they have any family to bring to the ceremony? If you've just tuned in, we're talking about relationships and robots. David Levy from the Netherlands University believes that by 2050, marrying a robot may be legalised and that we may even be able to have sex with them. We've heard about programming thought and movements into robots, but what about the psychological side of sparking up something special with an android? Jeron Descartes is a psychologist. Now, Jeron, do you think a robot can fulfil the emotional needs that we look for in a relationship? Oh, that's one of those questions, um, because it, of course, depends on what we are looking for in relationships. Um, I suppose that um, 
Many people will look for fulfillment of emotional needs in their pets, in their dogs, for instance. And I think that a lot of people would agree that a pet can fulfill those needs, whereas other people say, no, it will never be. So it's in a way, it's in the eye of the beholder. Hey there, good looking. Now, if you could program your ideal man in a robot, do you think you'd know what you were looking for? Well, clearly you'd, uh, you'd want one that, that would clean. Say we're giving this, given this right to um, program what you want in a partner into a robot. Do you think that as relationship seekers, humans actually know what they want in a partner and we'd get it right when we programmed a robot? I think if we could program a partner uh, as in a robot being programmed for us, uh, I think part of the attraction of having a partner is that you cannot exactly program the partner to do exactly what you want to do. It's, it's one of those tensions that makes uh, life dynamic. So no, I don't think that a robot will be satisfactory in that in the end. And if we were to start sleeping with robots, what impact do you think that this would have on society? Look, basically what you're talking about here is virtual sex. And, of course, that has been happening for a long time already. You know, we have had telephone sex, we've had chat lines, we've had virtual sex in the virtual worlds like uh, Second Life. I suppose this is more an extension of that. It just makes it more real and more three-dimensional um if this is really to occur and how do we know and i'm not going to say that it is or it isn't possible i have no idea um it will bring its own set of difficulties of course uh, what if the robot gets preferred over the real life partner and what if the robot is better at certain things than the real life partner i i am not sure that this is going to be a solution i think it's one of those 50 50 um um issues where it will bring as many uh, uh, um, uh, problems solved as problems created. That was Jackie Peffer speaking with psychologist Jaron Descartes. That's all from us here at this edition of Diffusion. If you've got any feedback or comments or preferably wild, passionate praise, offers of marriage, things like that, we'd very much like to hear from you. Send an email to us at diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion2ser.com. Or you can get our podcast. Download it from www.diffusionradio.com. www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were the special guests Sue Wareham, Jaron Descartes and Tillman Ruff with our regular contributors Jackie Peffer, Patrick Ruby, Ian Wolfe and Charles Willick. What more can I say except my name's Watmore, Lachlan Watmore. Diffusion this week has been produced by Charles and Ian and panelled by Ian in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We're broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. Join us inside your bunker of choice or for that matter an iPod for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. In Birmingham, they love the governor. Ooh, ooh, ooh. The great Tom Lehrer with Who's Next, and I will be scared if Alabama gets the bomb. One of the big news items of the past year concerned the fact that China, which we call Red China, exploded a nuclear bomb, which we called a device. (laughs) Then Indonesia announced that it was going to have one soon, and proliferation became the word of the day. Here's a song about that. First we got the bomb, and that was good, because we love peace and motherhood. Then Russia got the bomb, but that's okay, because the balance of power is maintained that way. Who's next? France got the bomb, but don't you grieve, because they're on our side, I believe. China got the bomb, but have no fears. They can't wipe us out for at least five years. Who's next? 
of an Indonesia claim that they were gonna get one any day. South Africa wants to.